Hennessy Files podcast series. Proudly presented by Aloha Surf Nanley. Welcome into the Hennessy Files. Today it is a special episode. We sit down with one of the true icons of the sport of surfing, Tommy Carroll, the passionate goofy footer from Sydney's Northern Beaches, set the world alight in the 80s and 90s, winning multiple world titles, and in doing so, becoming the face of the sport around the world. His life has been full of so many big highs, but there's also been incredible lows as well. He is battled addiction, got through the other side, and he's still regarded as one of the best big wave riders in the world. Today I sit down with him and have a chat, and I'm delighted to have him in my little studio in Manly. Welcome in, Tommy. Good to be here. Um, yeah. Mate, before we uh, take a, a step back into your journey in your career, I just want to get your, your grab at the moment on uh, the current situation. What have you been up to? How have you sort of handled the COVID sort of two years? Because it's been pretty heavy. Very, very different time, like, uh, for us all. And for me, um, it's, yeah, just like that super crazy feeling of uncertainty kind of washed over and it was like, okay, we may not be travelling for a while kind of feeling. And I'm so used to travelling. So that's the first thing I was, I was actually just... On, I did a trip to Hawaii in the February, last two weeks of February of that, before, uh, you know, they did the lockdown. And yep. um, uh, imposed lockdown the kind of last week of March, kind of like that 22nd, I think, or 21st of March. I was commentating in the Manly event and it happened the next day. Yes, yes. So it was lockdown time and I just didn't know what was happening. Like everyone else, uh, it all seemed to be very dramatic like a very dramatic act in the world to sort of shut things down and start to close things up. And some of the imagery coming out of China and how they were dealing with it with their citizens was quite alarming. And uh, so I was just saying, well, it won't happen here. <laughs> and so, <laughs> Have you travelled much? Have you been out of Australia since COVID? I've just come back from Hawaii. Oh, you came, just come back now? Yeah, this is my first trip overseas. Was it? How did it feel? Because I spoke to a couple of the crew on tour, and they were like, "It didn't feel the world did not feel the same." No, it's different. It's definitely had to change, and it's going on all the time anyway. Change, so it's it just had to change in a certain way and manner. We're we're still sort of uh, entangled in certain ways of dealing with each other in the, in in this and and imposing certain. Um, restrictions on our movements and, and the way we behave with each other. So that's happening and it doesn't seem like it's going to go away anytime soon. And I'm not sort of either an anti-vax or a vaxxer guy. Like I, I, I was very much wanting to just sort of sit off to the side and watch this. Don't get tangled in the big stories like this way or that and just to see how it was going and, and make the best judgment I can in order to just create sort of a space in life where I can enjoy it, you know, enjoy the space that I've got. And so that was really important for me and my partner, Mary. And so we, we decided to get vaccin- vaccinated in July so we could have our freedom to move around. 
And I know that there was a lot of stuff going on with the vaccine. There's all sort of stories coming left and right, and there was probably some truth to them and some not so much truth. And everyone's looked for truth and everyone's looked for freedom and all that sort of stuff. And there was all a lot of drama <laughs> around it. But um, I was lucky um, I didn't get affected by any, any bad effects. But I know people have had negative effects from so the vaccine and, and it was pretty sad and... And, like, I knew that we're, I had a really strong sense that we were just guinea pigs in the whole thing. And there was probably a lot of money floating around the world, um, changing hands. But it, uh, it certainly sort of seemed to. Now, I don't know about the lockdowns, but I know that the vaccine definitely sort of held um, people, people uh, held the virus at bay at, at, on, a, on a mass scale, but not... Uh, on some, for some individuals, definitely not. Yeah. All right, let's let's talk about surfing. Before we get into uh, your career, yeah. I want to talk about Kelly Slater. Yeah, uh, you've had you've you've had a lot to do with Kelly over the years with your association with Quicksilver and your time on tour. What was your thoughts on what just transpired at Pipe? Was that the most incredible thing you've you've literally ever seen? Because you've got to remember, like, I'm 51. He's 50. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> How did he do that? It's screwed up. I was trying to think about when I was 50 and what I was thinking of. And it definitely wasn't about winning the pipeline, but <laughs> maybe it would have been if I kept it moving. He's definitely kept his spark alive, like you can see. And, and it goes to show that how much of... Surfing is very much application, and just about anything in our life is just is is pure application, application in into what we love doing. And Kelly has stuck by it. He's he's stuck by that feeling that he gets about things and goes with it. He just he moves with that deep sense of I'm in the right direction here. He doesn't, and he kind of like he goes on his searching missions. But this is like, you know, particularly, you know, you know, to get into the groove at Pipeline like that, uh, you've got to have a lot of experience, right? So he, he was the most experienced character there. Uh, you know, John John had, has a lot of wealth of experience at Pipeline. Uh, but Kelly, you know, you think about he could have been Seth's father um, easily, <laughs> not, not even just half, but easily. And... Um, not only that, you know, four decades of winning, you know, pretty much at Pipeline, you've got this incredible relationship with it. So when he beat Baron Mamiya in that heat, going into the round of 16, he, you know, had four seconds remaining. And when you're that age and you pip, you, you, you win the heat like that, you know that, that from experience... The how many heats that you win with four seconds to go, and it's a crucial moment. Like he's in fully in the game, and he gets this. You know, he's still fully in the game. Four seconds ago, he's getting beaten out by this young guy who's killing it, Baramamia. He's very good at pipeline that whole reef there. He's he's excellent. He was beating out Kelly Slater. He was beating out the man, but he never beat out the man. And you can see, you know, the posture. When he came to the beach, his whole posture changed. He tapped into the source at that point and said, okay, something really special is going on here. 
for me this event that's uh when you have someone like kelly tapping into that very very difficult to beat uh especially when he's he's in tune with nature at that level i felt like there was a lot of emotion in kelly after that win like i've seen a couple of interviews and stuff i just felt like it was i don't know if it how he felt but it felt like he said it was the best win of his career but uh, there was so much to it because you know the journey had been so long and um like you said he had to really beat the guns this generation's guns to get it done yeah look look seth maniz was he'd been working really hard at that reef you know on that reef from the last particularly last year and a half years and he'd been really you know each last two seasons he'd been really pushing himself there he'd been spending lots and lots of time there so he there's no wonder he got john john out there too you know there was an incredible heat between him and john john brilliant surfing all around and then i think for kelly winning at 50 years of age at his you know at the prime arena in the prime arena of surfing, I can't imagine winning it at 50. I would have been like definitely crying all day. I'm just being like, because he he could see him having kind of moments all day in the water. You could see him having moments like he was mo- moving with the moment and staying, and 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 you could see him like talking to himself in the water and carrying on. Like he was some of some stuff was processing through him as he was surfing that event. And it was allowed to flow through him which helps him be in touch with the wave like um to know which wave to get you know he got that nine straight away with seth he got command at that final very quickly they all said something on the webcast today which made me laugh Mm. he said kelly uh before the final uh basically did a kelly thing where he where he quickly went down and grabbed his rashi and got himself into the lineup and and basically put the pressure on Seth to get out there quickly. Mm. And he said, had it been like a more experienced older guy, mm. maybe he would have said, give me 10 minutes, I'm going to yeah. go, reset and then come back out. But he said it was such a Kelly thing where he basically put the young gun in his spot before the actual mm. final started. So it was the head game thing. Oh, he's very good at that. He, he knows and feels and senses and feels and senses deeply. And so you can see um, every... You know, he had an opportunity. He definitely wanted to have that win. And he, he felt that, like I said, I think the posture started when he got that wave four seconds to go against Baramamia and really um, started to set the tone and he wasn't ever going to let um, this opportunity go. Like, no way. What, uh, for me as a fan, what's incredible about Kelly's ability is his... Um, the way he's able to reinvent himself from generation to generation. Like, like people who really don't get our sport would never get how tough it is to be able to basically succeed in one generation and one decade and then carry that through multiple decades. And that's why I personally think he sits in the lines of Michael Jordan, uh, Muhammad Ali, Tiger Woods as you know, probably one of the most uh, top five of all time athletes in the world. I'd have to agree. He's, uh, he's consistently in the creative position. Like he's, 
he's creating new opportunity all the time. He's he's always looking for it. He's very keen. He's putting all his and he's also moving in that emotional because you need you have to create keep moving, growing emotionally to sort of create. And so he's like creating kind of situations where he can grow, uh, move towards that growth pattern. And I think that's gold. Like, what an amazing gift that is to have that naturally in your, written in your code, really. He's like, uh, I think that's, you can't really teach that, you know? So he's like, he's come from this space and he's really gone in there and, and recreated himself, like you said, like, I found it myself, my own experience, becoming world champion and then having to think on that, God, am I got four? I better get two. I can't just get one. <laughs> I had to get two. So the second one uh, was really hard. It was harder than the first. Cause <laughs> Not many people go back to back either. Very tricky. You had to recreate and I had to go completely different angle on myself. It was a whole new angle and I, and I got it. I was like, oh, wow. And uh, and I and I gone okay. Well, I'm gonna go for three. <laughs> My body didn't hold up. I I I'd got an injury, but I got the first two event wins the in going to the third year. And again, I had this posture, a new posture. So, but I felt like I was ready to recreate a new thing. I can imagine you get to all these eleven world titles. And you've been able to recreate and recreate and recreate. So you've got this pattern, this incredible pattern that you live by inside. And that's like a code written into him, imprinted into his body to kind of, okay, we're going to do this today. Or we're going to do that today. This is how I'm going to get to this point. This is how I'm going to totally take in the information today. I'm going to sit back or I'm going to attract. I'm going to, you know, he's got all these, Is the code is very strong and... And yeah, like you can't imagine, I, I can't imagine being 50 and feeling that feeling of winning against the best in the world again. Uh, no wonder he was crying a lot. I mean, I would, the tears were doing flowing. It's just a beautiful thing to see him just be a channel of all that emotion and, and it be directed in such a healthy way. I've been following you on Insta and stuff and I know mm. you've been really, really into your deep meditation. Mm. Um, has that sort of come on stronger since the two years or has that been way back? Because my partner actually follows you religiously. Oh, isn't that cool? Yeah. yeah her name's uh, her, her, na- her name's Ali, but her, yeah. her thing is like Heart of a Gypsy. Oh, and, okay. I, see, I think I see Yeah. yeah and cool. she And she loves your meditation. Fantastic. She actually says it's mm. great for her mental health space. Beautiful. And, that, and uh, so, well, meditation, I've been meditating for about you know daily meditated for about 15 years so a little over now but it's like a this is my daily program and it's been very very important for me it's given me so much and in the ability to sort of become open to change and opportunity and adapt more adaptable just just the, all the all the great benefits of of a, of a practice, a meditation practice, have come true for me, and uh, and and any kind of wobble in the system, you know, like big changes, big shifts, big events that come along, are far easier to handle under the influence of regular meditation practice. They're much 
easier on the system. Decision-making, fluidity in movement become much, much more a part of who you are rather than there's less resistance to change. So when the pandemic came on, I thought, man, if there's any time people need some sort of, there might be some inquiry into meditation at this point for people. And I reckon a lot of people took it on. Yes, and it was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I, I saw it was a pretty wide need of the time. And in, uh, but I, I'd become a teacher of the Vedic technique of meditation, which is a, similar to transcendental, the same thing really. But it's, 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 a, it's a way of teaching it um, that I have, uh, which I didn't really set out to become a teacher. It just sort of came as a part of natural evolutionary process from 2016 when I, took, uh, I was taught this process, this, this technique. And it's a beautiful technique, but what I saw that, that time when Donald Trump made, okay, no flights here, bring my, do- uh, bring my daughter home, bring our daughter home, and then, okay, now's it not a bad time to maybe use Instagram for a really good thing, you know? So let's put it out there and I'll put, give everyone a, what I call a stage one meditation, which is not using a mantra, that, which, I, which I teach in the Vedic technique, but the using the breath as a kind of a mindfulness practice taking us inward. So using, the, using that. And I'd started off by doing one every day for everyone, like at five minutes just to intro it, just a five-minute meditation, five minutes, and people want to get a feel of it and what it's all about and have a chat about it. And, and that sort of was really cool. A lot of people came in and it was really nice to see the responses and how it affected people in, and getting direct um, feedback on how it was po- positively affecting people. Even after that first month, it was pretty cool. And then I went down to just three days a week because I'd come back on on the odd month. I never thought I'd stick it out for two years, but here I am, two years down the track, uh, pretty much almost, and we're still doing it, like three mornings a week. Yeah. I love it. And people, people dig it. Like I try to meditate. It's probably one of the hardest disciplines to actually master. I remember um, I sort of took in some uh, meditation classes in the city and the, uh, the Buddhist monks said, you know, meditation is near impossible to conquer. You have to be able to just feed it and let it engulf you and basically you'll learn how to adjust to it but you'll never no one's ever perfect at meditation but it's a great tool yeah and there's there's no such thing as a good or bad session you know no. a new meditation session it's like it's like anything really we're practicing at any you can do it anywhere anytime you don't have to be in the surf where a lot of people get a meditative experience with themselves because you have to drop all your thinking when you're about to get pounded by a wave or take off on a wave and you really have to be present to ride a wave and then you're in the water and you're off by nature and it's just sometimes it's a beautiful experience of the sun coming up and the light shining crystally kind of through the the water and you're getting this experience with nature that's really tied into being the the mind disappears and then your full presence comes in and it experiences it direct experience with nature and you have a direct experience with your own true nature at that same time it actually feel that's where you come out of the surf and you feel 
great. You feel, God, I'm actually, there's not one surfer, I've, even if there's, I've had a funny experience with another human being in the water, I still feel better every time I come in from the water. Let's get on to your career. From Newport? And uh, grew up in Newport and burst onto the scene. And I want to talk about, you know, your two wins at probably the most, or definitely the most prestigious junior event in the world at that time, the the Pro Junior. 77 and 80, I think it was, you won. How important was that as a development tool mentally and for you to know where you're at in your career at that stage? So important winning in that, that arena, like against the best of your generation and or at that time it was just a it was so raw the sport back then um but in comparison to now it's so much more sophisticated but and um back then just being at that cutting edge with all the the best juniors in australia and there's a couple from overseas and uh i remember being incredibly nervous going into that event going oh well some of us seeing joe engel surfing the alley right uh, from the surf club and just going, oh, God, no one's going to beat that guy. <laughs> I just, he's just like tearing living daylights out of the... So anyhow, yeah, getting that, yes, yeah, it's, it's being in that position and then now I've been turning it on. I, I, I didn't, I just went out with six-man heats and I remember that first win and as being kind of a, got into a groove, a feeling of, great sort of rhythm with myself and I'd just come in and win heats and I felt really strong on the left running down the beach and and I just the board fell I just started feeling that feeling that kind of I can't do a thing wrong I kind of everything was coming together in each heat just getting better and that formula kind of sort of setting into the system and that's that's sort of a formula that worked your whole career mm, mm. Yeah, and that starts that starts it off. I think yeah, getting that recognition with the with the best um, in in those arenas where you're challenged the most, and then you somehow find your rhythm in it, and uh, and you can win a heat here, and then you win. Uh, you get to the semis, and you sniff the final, and you kind of get to the final, and you find yourself in the final, and you go, and yeah, actually, and everything's still flowing. Uh, and you get a win on the podium, it's a pretty incredible feeling. Uh, it's an incredible feeling, such a confirmation of kind of... Not that I was... A, I was I'd bite on being competitive, but I don't think I was constantly competitive like a lot of other competitors were. Mm. Who was really competitive, like, as not as pros, but as, as the juniors coming through? Because our region is, has you know traditionally been stacked with world-class surfers mm. uh, like you say that you weren't you were competitive but not as strong who was the ones that really like made you think oh, i've got to lift my game shane horan when i was yep. a kid when i'm really young he was like here's one of the most competitive humans i've ever come across and super he loved playing the games too like uh, you know, like the he loved the mind games, which was cool. Like, I'm <laughs> like, I love Shane. He's like, he was, he he'd always sort of be doing. He was doing that back way back, and um, and you know, let's have a game of pinball. You know, let's see who. You know, let's have a game of, you know, table. Let's get the table tennis table out, and in or the is anybody you know any kind of game you can play with you get a little edge on you, 
anything where he can sort of get a he, he liked to do that and also he wouldn't let you look at his boards and and it was like and when he walk out in the water it was sort of he had a cool calmness to him but underneath, underneath there was a raging fire yeah yeah I want to talk about, uh, not many people would understand this, but in, I think it was 1981, your career nearly came to a, to an end. Didn't you have like a really bad knee injury at one stage yeah. that the doctor said you might not be able to compete ever again? That's right, yeah. Wow. Well, in 1977, we, we used to go and charge this wave, you might have point. We used to call it pissing point. <laughs> and we'll, you know, just, this was back in 77 when this original injury happened. And when it was too big on on the northern beaches to surf, we'd all just convoy it. All the Newport boys would just get in whoever's car we could, and we'd drive all the way around to your minor point, which was about an hour and a half on the freeway. Egg fights and stuff on the freeway. It was hectic, <laughs> you know. Just hanging out of the car. It was other people getting egged. It was it was pretty hectic days on the road. Well, we get up there and we just charge this right, you know, just go this slabby kind of right. And uh, back then we had pretty crude equipment, single fins, sliding down the face, getting flogged. And, <laughs> and we, we were just all about who could get the gnarliest wave, and of course. And I, I think I was 16 at the time and uh, just this weedy little freckly kid and... I had a pair of shorts on, board shorts, quickies, and I had um, this rip curl um, front zip. Um, no, actually, no zip, uh, little short sleeve um, neoprene vest on, and there was no zip. And I and I took off in this wave, and I just wanted to take off in the biggest wave I could, dropping into it backside, and imagine me a little bug style, you know, like trying to pull it up, and then. And it's getting a bit low tide, so it started triple sucking on the section in front of me. And, I, and I, that was new information for me. I'd never <laughs> riding into like an eight-foot wave. And it was thick wave. There was really no back on the wave then. So I'm like coming to this, this section thinking I'm going to pull in, but I can't. So I thought, I better just straighten out. Bad move. <laughs> so I go to straighten out and I go down over this like skip over this this ledge uh, of triple suck down onto this onto the the, the water kind of drawing off the, this flat bit of reef and I like stop on this bit of water you know and the whole wave falls on me and goes straight and drives me straight into my board and buckles my front leg and it just comes completely apart like dislocates really violently and I get blasted, ended up in the rocks, uh, mulling around in the washing around in the rocks, and my wetsuits come off, got ripped off. Everything's, I'm like, <laughs> my boards are, you know, getting dragged through the rocks. I'm, and but my leg, my knee feels like there's nothing holding it together. Like I can't, it's flopping around and carrying on, and it's and it can't tell. It's just a shock gone through me, and I tried to get up the rocks, but I couldn't get up the rocks. And the waves were hitting me and stuff, and I was getting rolled and getting scrapped up. Somehow I got my wetsuit and sort of just hobbled my way up and got washed around the rocks, up and over, and got to the car and sat down. I remember I just had blood hanging out of me. And uh, my knee was just 
um, really sore, like really sore in certain movements, and I and I just felt like there was nothing holding it together. Like I said, and that was it. That was the cruciate ligaments. Cruciate ligament was torn completely, and the uh, the medial ligament was 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 torn almost all the way through. But they didn't know what they were talk. They didn't know what they were looking at back then. Uh, so that was 1977. And then you did it again in a pub. Then uh, what happened was I. For about three years, I had I saw specialists and stuff, and they said, "Oh, you'll be right, you'll be right, mate. Like, um, you just you, you just got a bit of a sprain." <laughs> they give you this sort of the funniest like. Now I look back on it, the crew that were looking at me, the the so-called specialists, were definitely not. Um, yeah, well, they they just didn't really know. They didn't. They weren't even. Um, you know giving the necessary kind of once over about checking and, and doing the testing on the ligaments um, that I eventually had done um, in 1981 where I, uh, I did my final dislocation because it had just come apart and I used to be able to put it back together. Like I just, in a, I remember first trip to Hawaii in 1978 and, and then the next year in 1979, uh, 80 winter, I could just get pounded on the inside of Sunset and the knee would come apart and I'd be able to put it back in. That was kind of like normal for me. And that was just like, oh, okay, I'll be right. Then that's just the way I rolled. And I, and I was pretty, you know, when I look back on it, I just didn't really get the great advice at all. So um, finally I got myself a ticket. And I, was, I was getting on the tour and I was getting some good results. Um, and getting recognition and I thought I'm going to go and surf in Europe in the Europe just the first stages of the European tour where there was an event in Cornwall and then there was an event in Lacanau but the Lacanau event wasn't part of the tour yet and so I thought oh yeah I'm going to you know I'm going to come over to Europe and surf those events as well and I'll see if I can get get some points up uh, so I booked myself a trip to Europe and about two weeks out, I was, I was training, taking care of myself, I was getting myself ready. And I was actually at Newport Pub saying goodbye. I was leaving, leaving fairly early from the pub, saying goodbye to everyone. I was jumping over a fence and sort of spinning around, landing, and I was landed backwards sort of saying goodbye. There was nothing extraordinary to me. It was just what I did from time to time, jump over fences and carry on. So I was jumping over a fence saying goodbye. And the knee wasn't stable, of course, and it popped out backward. So that was that was it. I ended up on the, and I don't know whether you ever go to Newport Pub and you got the the, the drive-through bottle and uh, you can't see it now, but there used to be this little fence and there's a beer garden. You could jump over the fence, and there's this there's this cement ramp that goes up to it. I land on that ramp backwards, and it popped out, and then I went down on the ramp. I was just into the fetal position, and I didn't know. At that point, I ended up sort of, that directed me straight to a really good surgeon. Um, his name's Merv Cross. And Merv Cross... Very famous surgeon, actually. He yeah. does all the footy boys. Yeah, he's got a... His son does a lot of footies now, footy boys now. Yeah, he did, as well, yeah. did a lot of footy boys back in the 80s and the 90s. He became the guru <laughs> with the knee surgery. Um, actually created the surgery with the hamstring graft. He taught it to surgeons around the world. He was very... And, and, and he was such a bloke, you know, like 
He was like, ah, oh, yeah, go on, Tommy, give us a look at that knee. He said, grabbing it and just ripping it around, pulling it apart and stuff. I'm going, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? He goes, oh, yeah, well, we'll just tie that up, mate. Let's, let's book him in. We'll just book him in for him, you know? And, of course, they'd done a lot of damage to the knee over the four years of just sort of, you know, the cartilages were all torn up and there was a lot of damage inside the knee. But finally, um, you know, he was able to, you know, pull it all together, but... And one of the doctors who was assisting said, you won't be competing again. No way. Not under that. Not with that thing. You, your knee was really bad. So, and I just cried. I literally wake up crying. I'd cry myself to sleep for about three days. Like, I thought, wow, that's it? Is this it? And, um... How'd you overcome that? Because you'd trained really hard. What it did was the knee actually informed um, the knee rehab which oh, they only gave me a couple little exercises with this rubber band to do um, with the legs of um, tables and chairs. And, and so and they gave me one exercise and that was sort of a straight leg pulling the, the toe, the big toe towards you and then just turning on the VMO, which is a muscle on the inside of the leg, actually a very, very important stabiliser muscle for the whole leg system, the whole the way the leg moves. So... This VMO was just gone, it was non-existent, but they got me sort of turning that on and off and on and off. So that was the only, it was like three exercises they gave me. And said, okay, you just do those, you'll be fine. <laughs> anyway, that was physio back then. Anyway, and, uh, and I couldn't straighten the leg anyway because they put me in a cast for six weeks in a right angle. So when they took that off, it looked like, oh, my nickname is Chook Leg because it looked like a chicken leg. And then... It was stuck in a right angle and I had to actually straighten it out. The physio, that's all the physio do was try to straighten it out. It was agony. Wow. So the 1980s, right, I want to talk to you about this decade. For for me as a grommet, you know, I felt like surfing really exploded. Uh, To me, you guys were like rock stars. You were rocking around in the uh, frog skins and, and... it was just a different time. How, how special was that time? I mean, you won two world titles, but just the whole aura of the 80s and, and, and how professional surfing really just exploded. How good was that? It was amazing to be involved in something that was growing at a pace. And there's so much vibrance about surfing. There's so much... It was super vibrant. Now, you could see by the colours of the 80s, you know, just a wave and used to wear fluoro and <clears throat> and there was it was all pretty you look back and it was super unsophisticated just raw we were pretty raw in the way we did things and but there was so much opportunity everyone was just going for it there was no like big plan i don't think there was like a we just wanted to be stars um we wanted it to be a sport i wanted surfing to be noticed because the seeds of that had been sown quite young because when I went to school they used to think surfing was a complete joke and I used to win the schoolboys event or the Australian titles and I'd turn up to the assembly at school and then they'd be bringing out the netball team uh, who won the area and stuff and making a big hoo-ha and then they'd be bringing out um, like a, a young tennis player which is tennis is great I love tennis but he just, just won this local competition I won an Australian title and they're just like, oh, surfers are just scum, you know, like we were looked down upon. It might sound all groovy to be a part of a counterculture, which is 
not a bad thing at all, but I just knew there was more to us, this being a kind of an athletic pursuit as well as an art form. You know, just like dancing, it's sort of, it's a, there's beauty involved in it, but there's also a, a very special dance with nature on top of it being an athletic uh, pursuit and uh, we, com- we actually compete to see who's best at. And then that was sort of a natural kind of thing that came along with surfing with other crew at the beach growing up. I felt like the 80s, there was sort of... What stood out for me, it was like there was a mystery to the tour. There was an innocence to the tour. Mm. Like, there was no social media, no mm. live webcast. In fact, as a grommet, I used to have to wait to video easy would rock up with those with the yeah. events on video yeah. remember them they used yeah. to like the gunston pro yeah. would come out on a video and everyone would be frothing and unless you read surf mags it, it took you like a month to get a result back so for me there was such a innocence to the tour back then the excitement of the huge crowds i remember going to cronulla i think the bow repairs may have been at cronulla or something and something at bondi but the one thing that stood out for me at both of those events my dad took me to was how incredible you guys were in small waves and how bad the waves were that you guys had to compete in. Yeah. Now, when we talk about that, to me, that's the only negative of the tour back then. Mm. The opportunities to surf uh, and, uh, like you say, like your art form, really wasn't there. It was just a battle, wasn't it? Well, I had to train, you know, like a, you know, the knee, the knee injury informed training and, and getting, and I got the effects of training and my surfing getting better in certain ways. I go, oh, that's kind of cool. I'll start doing some training in order to improve my big wave surfing, which I love the power more than the little waves. But a lot of the events were held in little waves, so I've gone, and it could be held in anything, really. It could be. Didn't you win one in a pool? Yeah, one in a pool at Allentown, Pennsylvania. (laughs) Yeah, the the, the wave pool event against Derek O in the final. We used to surf against each other in the final pipe and we just look at each other in the pool going what are we doing here we are but he was just as hungry at the pool as what he was a pipe the waves were so like the venues you know it'd be atlantic city um the wave pool in pennsylvania japan at the wrong time of year um all these places that were just uh, and then they put japan on the typhoon season and it got massive we'd have to surf like massive 15 foot closeout or just get washed to see, you know. And some events were just hectic and they throw us out in anything and, and sometimes it'd be so small like Florida. I won my world my first world title by going to Florida and winning a, a B grade event. Uh, wow. to get the points up so I didn't have to rely on winning it at Bell's Beach. And so just to one you know, under the guidance of my, my manager at the time he said Look, you can actually win if you go to Florida and win this B-grade event. So I flew quickly to Florida, won in like half-foot waves, but I'd, the thing is I'd done my training in little ways. I'd put a lot of effort. I'd started to hone my training on understanding how to surf little waves. I remember Tom Curran turning up, and he could surf a little wave like unbelievably well. Like he, he's doing full roundhouse cutbacks on a tiny little wave on a twin fin, and I go, I can't, I can't, I've got to just lift my game. And so I, I did a lot of work in little surf and, and then it's particularly in the summer surf of Sydney and um, which is, can be very, like, you know, really small like <laughs> Norris, wind swells. And so, which were kind of perfect for training 
uh, for little waves. But that actually, all that training little waves actually made it better for bigger waves too. Like my surfing got stronger in, in bigger surf as well. In that era, right, who was the craziest fans in the world? Because, you, you, like, you guys were, like, as I said, heroes to everyone and just, like, superhero figures. Like, who who was the maddest fans? Because they say the Brazilians are now, but back in the day, who were the craziest? Brazil was pretty crazy. Like, yeah. Even Brazil, back then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, hectic. And, and full tilt, like, very, very, I mean, I can imagine them now. <laughs> I think next level. And, uh... But, you know, Japan was pretty cool. Like, the Japanese fans were pretty out there. Like, the girls and stuff, they get all kind of freaked out and they kind of, yeah, it's pretty... Japanese fans are just epic. They really, like, get so into it and and they get... They're speechless. They're completely speechless, you know, and they see it. They get, oh, oh you know, they can see them winding <laughs> up. <laughs> and then where else, like... um uh, uh, do you wear soap and like back in the day? Oh, the East Coast of was the US too. Like, that looked a, mad. Event, oh, yeah, big thing. <laughs> some bad, bad things going on in the background. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember you know, talking actually, about they, they weren't bad, they were really fun. And there was some fun, it was a different era. So fun, yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff. We had a great time, got a little bit loose here and there, but it was. A great time on the East Coast, like, I mean, the East Coast, like, the boys get themselves in all sorts of trouble with the girls over there. <laughs> <laughs> I remember talking to uh, to Doom about it and he said, oh, the maddest on tour when he was on tour was our good mate, John Shamuka. Like, Shmu would go oh, crazy in the Shmoo. <laughs> what a legend. Oh, he's a legend. Oh, especially at the end of the tour was in the end of Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Honolulu, oh, Waikiki, it'll light up. Oh. <laughs> it was big time. I love it. Now, um, just uh, talking about your, your two world titles, how special was uh, those two? And do, are they each different in the way you felt with the two world titles? Or, or were they, because they're back-to-back kind of thing, they were, you know, you were just focused on win, win, win? Uh, well, the first one's really good because you, you get this really... You don't know. I just didn't know that I could do it until I could really smell it, and I couldn't really smell it until uh, you know the last few events. And even then, I didn't really believe it. Like I don't know. Everyone thinks about belief, belief. You got to believe in yourself. But really, it came in increments. It came in really small increments to me. It's different for everyone. Uh, but for me, it came in little increments of of action and. And I wouldn't say belief, but just feeling more confident in what I was doing. And it just sort of was just little bits at a time. It never came in big bursts. And uh, even though you could look back and see the last, I did win, have an have amazing winning streak going to that, that first world title at the end. And won like, I can't remember how many heats I won, but I won a whole load of heats. Um, three events in a row and then almost four with Bells. Uh, but Shane Pitney <laughs> for the <laughs> Bells event. But that next, the next year, uh, uh, that was, that was uh, a tough one. It was a very, very tough year. There was Who was moment, your biggest rival? Was it Tommy um, Curran? Um, it, 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 it became Tommy Curran. 
And then it became, well, there's a whole bunch of them, like Pots. Pots, yeah. T- Tom Curran, Oki. Uh, and Oki was ripping. He was on fire. Like, he was killing it. And, but he, he didn't caught. He was just so naturally talented and, and so dangerous in the lineup. And I watched it, you know, when we went to Jeffrey's Bay, which was a, a low-grade event, uh, a country-feeling classic, and he... He surfed backside. Like, I'd never seen anyone surf that well backside in my life on waves like that. Um, and I was just going, how the hell am I going to beat this guy? Like, I was, it was a real time to kind of, for me, to, I, I just felt like he had such a great edge in his backside surfing and speed and flow and nothing was in the way. It was just ripping. And I was going, how do I get that? I need that because at the moment I'm, you're going to be, I'm trailing this stuff, you know, and I need to work on myself. And so I left that event and I never get getting to um, the Gunston 500 and I had, I had a board that I didn't really like. And I remember just being in my hotel room in Durban and just going, I could either take this like it's a real, like a chip, like you feel a chip forming on my shoulder, like, oh, they're calling him the world champ already. They're all kind of leading the ratings. And I was reigning world champ and I felt, ah, you know, I could be real bitter about this. I could kind of take this on. But that, something was saying, you've got another option here, Tom. You can actually focus on applying yourself and improving yourself. You don't, you don't have to take that route. Like, I could feel the two roads, like literally crossroads. If I go down that road, I'm just going to turn into a bitter, twisted human being or I go this way and I really apply myself and give it everything I've got no matter what and I can at least say that you know that's sort of putting it in there I don't know where it's going to go but let's give it a go and this board that I've got here I don't really like it that much it's not preferable to me but try to apply yourself to this board and do the best you can on it and see if you can actually start to rack up a couple of heat wins on a board that you don't like, because this is a new new territory for me. I need to have a board that I really like, that I, it had to be this perfect scenario, and that wasn't a perfect scenario. So got to the Gunson 500 and started to apply myself on that angle. And it worked. I won the Gunson 500. I just stepped off that Gunson 500 and I went, right, I'm going to California, because that's where Rusty Priestenthal lives, and he was shaping Oki's boards. And Oki just fueled my fire. So I went to Rusty Priestendorfer, got some new boards, and then I went and competed in uh, Europe and, and got some good results and started to get a ball rolling again. Came back to California, got better results there and, and started to rack up good results, not wins, but good results. Consistency. Consistency. And then I started getting some wins back on the back side of the, of the tour, uh, which was, um, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a really tough year of just mentally applying myself and everything kind of going in a wobbly direction and then having to kind of create a new scenario in order to you know not go the fork in the road the wrong way yeah and that was a big lesson for me that year i think when we speak about consistency even these days you know you look at uh parko's world title win he didn't win an event until pot he'd won the world title but he also realized that he hadn't got the win that year and he wanted the pipe win, but he did say, you know, it was the consistency of my performances mm. 
And when you look at a world title race, I think that is key. There's guys mm. who can clearly win events, mm. but it's the guys who can put multiple results together mm. that are the ones who win world titles. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And it's, uh, it is nice to be in the top um, three of the event, you know, like in the semifinals, in the semifinals, consistently in the semifinals, and then, you know, maybe in second, first, second, third, and then third, third. If you can sort of, sort of hover around that, that top um, top three kind of yeah that's that's what you want to do <laughs> consistently in the semis and in the final you, you, you're pretty good at winning you won 26 events uh, Bruce Raymond who I worked with so closely over the years you know and great friend and and mentor and in kind of life and, and business and we were very close you know over those years and we were partners and so on but he had a his his uh his affectionate uh comment here about me me being the 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 worst competitive surfer to win a world title <laughs> <laughs> goodbye yeah nice bruce uh and and, and yeah because i strategically i'm not a strategist i'm a i'm a kind of a feeling go in feel uh surfer you know and not go out and i used to create a lot of frustration for myself in that way that I, that I had certain strategies in order to get a couple of decent score rides in the first five minutes or at least one good strong scoring ride in the first five minutes and then play out the next five to ten minutes in order to kind of back that up uh, and, and, and uh, lose and make sure my composure is good through even if it didn't happen so I can sort of open to opportunity. And so, and, but I had to be really, really in touch with my, my body, my my board, my performance had to be very close to it. Whereas I noticed people like Kelly, he could come, he, could, he had like months off like before Hawaii this year to win. He could do that. I go, I just couldn't do that. I needed to be involved and had to be with it a lot to stay in tune into that sort of feeling application uh, to become a winner and be very focused on that.